Good morning, church. My name is John Menton. I'm one of the elders at Grace Bible Church here in East London, South Africa. And I'm so glad to be able to join you again this week for part seven of the series, The God We Can Know. We've been exploring who God is, looking at some aspects of his nature, his character and attributes, not just to, to know more about God, but to stir our affections for him, to increase our awe of him and to grow in gratitude for his grace towards us. These doctrines, these truths about God are meant to change us and lead us to greater intimacy with our awesome God. This morning we're going to look at the goodness of God, the goodness of God. Our passage of scripture is Psalm 73 because it addresses something we all struggle with, especially when it comes to the doctrine of God's goodness. And that is, what do you do with your theology when it clashes with your experience? What happens when what you see doesn't seem to line up with your convictions about God? That's the situation of the psalmist in Psalm 73. It, it was written by Asaph, who, like David, was a poet and a musician. In this psalm, Asaph is dealing with a crisis of faith. He's wrestling with his doubts about God's goodness. None of us are unacquainted with doubt. All Christians at some time or another struggle to understand God and what he is doing in their lives and in the world. And what's so great about the Psalms is that they don't only speak to us, but they also speak for us when distress and discouragement cause us to throw up our hands and say, God, I don't even know what to say. God, I don't even know how to pray. In the Psalms, we see the raw emotions is expressed of people just like us. And we also find the deep reservoirs of truth that help them and will help us in our experiences. Asaph didn't find the answer with one step of faith, but through many steps of wrestling with his doubts. As we follow his journey from almost turning away to a renewed faith, I pray we will too come to a greater realization that our ultimate need and desire is for the Lord, and that He is working in our current circumstances for our good and for His glory. So the first point, the first thing that we see is the premise and the problem. The premise and the problem. Verse 1 and 2. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph starts with the statement of belief. This truth was fundamental and foundational to the faith of every Israelite. The equivalent for us today would be to say, God is good, and we anticipate the reply all the time. It's saying something like, we believe in a God who is good to those who trust in his son, Jesus Christ. Surely we agree to that. Surely God is good to his own people. That is, that is how it's meant to work. Asaph starts on the right foot. His theology is great. God is always good to his people. The problem, however, as we see in verse 2, is that for Asaph, this has become a platitude, an insincere statement, a mere spiritual cliche. God is good to Israel? 
You cannot be serious. That's what it's like in theory, but not in practice. Even though he has right theology, his experience in this particular moment is colliding with his theology. They're not squaring up. It's like he's saying, God is good to his children, but right now, it doesn't feel like it. Especially as I look at the world around me. Asaph's sure-footedness starts to slip in verse 2. Something is happening that is causing him to doubt and lose his footing and his confidence in the goodness of God. Now I want you to know that, that everyone goes through seasons of doubt. Doubt, in and of itself, isn't a bad thing for us to experience. To be sure, it's not good for us to live in doubt, but there are times uh, or seasons where we do doubt. We doubt the reality of God. We, we doubt the presence of God in our lives, and we doubt the goodness of God. Here we see that even the author of Scripture is in a moment of doubt, and so we are in good company. I'm reminded of doubting Thomas, who after doubting the resurrection of Christ, gives us one of the most powerful and clearest statements concerning the deity of Christ. In John 20, verse 28, Thomas sees the risen Christ and he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And so from doubting Thomas, we have this wonderful confession of faith. And in a sense, Asaph is doing something similar here for us. We see it's okay to have doubts. People can doubt. Many saints along the way have doubted, but don't live there. Don't stay in that place. Jesus didn't want doubting Thomas to stay doubting Thomas. Likewise, God doesn't want us to continue in doubt, but to move from doubt into confession. How we deal with our doubts is really important. And so let's consider the reasons for Asaph's doubt in verse 3 through 12. In verse 3, we have the reason stated very clearly. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There we have it, plain and simple. Asaph is not doubting God's existence. He, he's a believer. He is, however, doubting the goodness of God. And he is envious of the unbeliever. Why? Because they seem to be prospering. Now the thing is, if anyone takes a, a long enough and hard enough look at the world around them, they are going to find someone, somewhere, who seems to have a better life. And that is exactly what, what Asaph is wrestling with. Asaph has looked over the fence at the other team, and they seem to be doing a whole lot better than his side. His doctrine tells him that God is good to his people, but from what he is seeing, it seems like it's the unbelievers that are prospering, and it's the people of God who are struggling. He lists the things that, that he sees for us here in real detail, and so just to summarize them, firstly, he was envious of their lifestyle. He was envious of their lifestyle. Look at verse 4 and 5. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They don't have the same, the same pains and struggles in life that the believers had. They are well fed, healthy and wealthy, free from everyday hassles. They appear to be living 
the dream. Secondly, he is upset by their pride. Look at verse 6 to 9. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. He says they wear their pride like a golden chain for everyone to see. They arrogantly boast that they have more than their hearts could wish for. They are corrupt, and they they use their status and power to bully others. And they don't even acknowledge God's goodness in their lives. They, they, They even seem to shake their fists at God. And he is jealous of their popularity. Look at verse 10. He says, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. It seems as if even some of of the Israelites saw the wealth and success of the wicked and they wrongly reasoned that God, if God was supposed to be good to the pure in heart, something had gone terribly wrong. And so even God's people follow after these successful people. And to add insult to injury, they openly mock God. What what can God do to us, they say? God is blind. How could Asaph answer people with that kind of attitude? How do you witness to a world that sees the godly suffer while the ungodly succeed and prosper? And so Asaph's conclusion in verse 12 is, Look, can you not see that it's the unbelievers that, that have it easier? who have more and and keep getting more. And it's the believers, the Christians, who battle and suffer. There's a note of cynicism and despair running through these verses. verses. Asaph is frustrated. He is envious. It's just not fair, he says. And so he is doubting big time. Asaph is really feeling the, the reality of what he is seeing around him. He's measuring God's goodness by his faulty interpretation of God's providence. He's measuring God's goodness by his faulty interpretation of God's providence. But Asaph doesn't stop there. In verse 13 to 15, we see self-analysis. Asaph does some self-analysis. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands. In innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He looks inward and examines his own heart and life. He considers his life of obedience to God and he begins to question whether or not it is worth it. He feels like God has ripped him off. He has been cheated. He says, all of this commitment to God has got me nothing. I've followed the way of truth and righteousness in vain. It hasn't done me a bit of good. What a terrible verdict. Now what's going on here? Asaph looks and sees the prosperity of the wicked and sees that those who are committed to God openly experience great distress and chastening in life. The thing is, this is is not new. This is the age-old problem of the righteous suffering. It's ancient. It goes all the way back to Job. 
And in verse 13 and 14 here in the psalm actually echo Job's experience in Job chapter 6 to 10. So why all of a sudden does it become a crisis for Asaph? Why did it become a crisis for him? And the answer is, Asaph has now become the sufferer. Asaph has become the sufferer. You see, we have our philosophical and our theological explanations for suffering. But the problem of suffering remains out there until it comes close. Until we become the sufferer. You see, we know many people who are unemployed or struggling financially. But it's, it's not until I get laid off from work that I complain about injustice. We read of thousands of people dying from disease or war. And it's never a crisis of faith until it's someone in my family, my spouse, my brother, my sister, my parents, my children. See, the real issue is, why is this happening to me? Why me? The truth is that it's not our social conscience that is outraged. It is our envy that has been inflamed. The problem is envy. To say it bluntly, if I had some of what they had, I would be far less concerned about the toleration God was showing them. See, envy is playing the compare game and coming second every time. As one author has aptly written, of the seven deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. So like Asaph, we can often be far too self-focused. We look at our personal circumstances and measure God's goodness by them. And that's always a mistake. Calvin said, affliction is generally accompanied by dejection. And dejection issues in doubt. And doubt gives rise to mental conflict. And then the struggle becomes intense. And that's exactly what the psalmist is going through. In verse 15, he acknowledges that if he had spoken what was really on his mind, he would have discouraged other believers and maybe even caused them to stumble. So imagine Asaph getting up in church on one Sunday morning and shouting out, Christianity doesn't work. I've tried it. Open your eyes. What do you see? What is all of our commitment getting us? It's totally unjust. Now, isn't this the sort of thing that we've been seeing in the media recently? So-called Christian celebrities venting their frustrations and doubts about God in public. And and when you take the time to read their story, you soon find out that they they never really took the time and, and made the effort to work through some of these difficult yet common questions about the faith. And so Asaph looks back at At this time in his life, and he is thankful that he didn't do that. That he didn't broadcast his doubts for all to hear. And that's an important lesson for us today. It's totally okay to have doubts, to have unanswered questions, but we should be careful how we go go about talking about it. We We should speak with other brothers and sisters in Christ who love us. Other brothers and sisters in Christ whom we trust. And so I know you are always welcome to talk to the elders at Crosspoint Coast and, and bring your questions, bring your doubts to them. Asaph looked around 
and he became envious of the prosperity of the worldly. He looked inward and he, he found unrest and turmoil, along with the growing feeling that he had a, made a mistake in trusting and obeying God. Look at verse 16. He's saying, I've tried to figure it out, but it's beyond me. It's beyond me. So now what will he do? Will he abandon his faith and run with the worldly crowd? Will he hold to his faith and pretend that nothing is wrong while he deteriorates spiritually and eventually falls away? Or, well, in the second half of the psalm, we find out what happens. A new perspective. He gains a new perspective. Verse 17 to 28. Now, verse 17 is the, the hinge of the psalm. Everything turns and changes at this point. Asaph is intensely honest in revealing his innermost thoughts and his temptations. He's full of bitterness. He's considering giving it, it all up, and then it changes. What changes? Look at verse 17, the first part of verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. See, he enters the place where people worship God, where God's word is opened and taught. Now, he may have gone unwillingly, out of a sense of duty. He may have even been leading worship that, that morning. But things change because of God's word and worship. Things change because of God's word and worship. So he moves from poor me in verses 13 to 15 to foolish me in verses 18 to 22. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the primary thing that worship does is put God at the center of our vision and understanding. Worship puts God at the center of our vision and understanding. Worship is vitally important because it's only when God is at the center of our vision that we see things as they truly are. By nature, because of sin, our thinking and our perspective is distorted. We don't see things as they really are. Have you ever been to a fair or, 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 or carnival and you looked at yourself in one of those huge mirrors that distort your, your size and shape? Our children, they love using uh, smartphones with that camera app that does the same thing. It distorts your face and your, your image. And I know that they love it because I find hundreds of pictures on our phones. Now what, what we see here what this is saying is that normal life in this world distorts our vision and understanding. But worship helps us to see and feel as God does. Worship brings clarity. Worship brings true perspective. Worship brings reality. And so Asaph begins now to think spiritually. Now this doesn't mean that, that we're ignorant, that we close our minds to the facts. It actually means that we open our minds to all the facts. See, there are spiritual realities which are real, that exist. There is much more to life than what we can observe. What is real is how God sees things. And so Asaph gets proper perspective. He gets proper perspective on three things as he worships. Number one... Proper perspective on eternal realities. Verse 18 to 20. Asaph is a man who's deeply troubled because he saw wicked people prospering. But that's all he sees. He is short-sighted. It's kind of like watching a movie leaving before the end. 
You don't know the full story. Asaph didn't know the full story. He didn't have the full picture in view. He had not seen the wicked on the day of judgment. But suddenly, in worship, he realized the end. Look at verse 18. It says, truly, you set them in slippery places. See, they seem to be secure in this life, but then there is ruin. Verse 19, they seem so wealthy, then they are suddenly destroyed. They seem so untouchable, then they are swept away. In verse 20, they seem so powerful and invincible, but like a dream, they are here now, but soon they are no more. God does despise the wicked, and he will judge them. There is nothing to envy here. Imagine having tickets for a luxury suite on the Titanic. I mean, who wouldn't want that, right? Pure decadence. You're going to be a part of history. You're going to have stories to tell. You're going to have, you're going to have plenty to brag about. Yes, you will make history, but in a way that you would have never thought. How could anyone now envy people on the Titanic? So how can we envy people who will be judged by the living God and will be lost for all eternity? On the day of judgment, there will be men and women who will be eternally ruined. That's reality. So when Asaph went into the place of worship, when he, in, he went into God's presence, everything changed. This was the place where appearances could be distinguished from reality. This was the place where present realities could be viewed in the light of eternal realities. So he gets proper perspective. And he gets proper perspective, secondly, on himself. Verse 21 to 24. Worship also enables us to see ourselves as we really are. First, there is conviction and repentance in verse 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He admits that he was stupid and lacked understanding. He says, I've been like a brute beast. I've been like a dumb animal. Now picture an animal caught in a trap and a ranger comes to the rescue. And as they try to, to free the animal, it lashes out and, and strikes the hand that is trying to free it. Asaph realizes that he has been like this with God. He was completely wrong. Envy had blinded his vision. And in the light of God's presence now, Asaph sees his sin and he repents. And in verse 23 and 24, we see clearly what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a blessed person he is because he is in a covenant relationship with the true and living God. Look at verse 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guard me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. He realizes that despite his behavior, he was always with God. And that God had a tight grip on him. His faith did not depend on, on his fragile, his vulnerable hold on God, but God's unbreakable hold on him. We see here a sharp contrast to the wicked who claim that God knows nothing. Asaph here admits that it's God's counsel that guides him in the right way. And in the end, 
the good shepherd will take him, take him in to everlasting glory. This is all of grace. This is God's goodness. This is God's grace. I'm reminded of David's words in Psalm 23. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the place of worship, Asaph has come alive to the reality of his spiritual wealth. Number three, he gains proper perspective on ultimate worth. Proper perspective on ultimate worth in verse 25 and 26. These verses here are regarded as, as some of the deepest and the most beautiful poetry in the Old Testament. Look at verse 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's a magnificent statement about true treasure. Let's go back to verse 1 for a second. He says, God is good to his people. God is good to his people. Will he make them rich, healthy, successful, popular? No. Sometimes he will. Often he won't. Many of us have held somebody's hand in marriage, covenanted before God, for richer or poorer, in sickness and health, for better or worse. And what we're saying is, I want to be with you no matter what. I choose to love you no matter what. My enjoyment in life depends on having you with me. See, it's, it's not about the additional blessings. It's all about having you. And that's where the psalmist is now with the living God. He desires God himself, not the gracious hands up, handouts. See, the best thing about true Christianity is being in a loving relationship with God through Christ. It's about Jesus, trusting him, knowing him, following him, worshiping him. He is incomparable. The presence of God is the only ultimate good. And in the light of this, worldly prosperity is of no lasting value. How foolish would it be and how short-sighted it would be to trade in the material temporary things for the eternal everlasting treasures of being with God. I read this week in an old sermon from 1786. It said, The godly have a much better portion than the wicked, even though they have no other portion but God. Asaph's problem with the goodness of God and the prosperity of the wicked was rooted in a defective definition of good and evil. He had, he had equated good with prosperity and he had equated evil with adversity. But now he understands good in terms of the presence of God. He understands what true good really is. He no longer envies the wicked. He knows that their prosperity and their pleasure will shortly come to an end. Verse 27, For behold, those who are far from, from thee will perish, for thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. 
And then in the final verse, verse 28, we see the premise of verse 1 has become a wonderful profession of faith. A wonderful personal confession. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. God isn't just good to his people. He is good to me. And I want to tell everyone, God is so good. He is so good to me. Drawing near to the Lord in word and worship is always for our good. And when we are far from God, it's easy for us to forget that He is sovereign. When we are far from Him, we tend to forget that His eternal plans for us are good and and they will will come to pass. And we we tend to forget that we are His beloved children. But when we draw near to God, these wonderful and absolutely sure truths come into full view again and our doubts about His goodness fade away. So as I close, let's stop and think about this. The intimacy with God that we were created for ended when Adam and Eve failed to trust God's goodness and sinned. They hid themselves from the presence of God and from that day on, men and women have experienced alienation and separation from God. Nearness to God is not something which we are born with, not something which comes naturally, something that we can earn. The Bible says that we were born as enemies of God, rebels against Him, and sickness, suffering, and death are some of the tangible results of our sin. Now the beautiful story of the gospel is that the consequences of sin, sickness, and sorrow, and death are the very things which God has ordained as His instruments to bring men and women back into the enjoyment of His presence. See, the good God sends His good Son, Jesus Christ, to earth, adding humanity to His deity so that He could experience suffering and death. Jesus lived a perfect life. He was blameless in every way. Jesus had goodness written all over His life. In all his interactions with with people, it was pure goodness. Every other, other person has been sinful, a rebel. Yet Jesus suffered more than anyone else. Jesus is the one person who, by virtue of his own perfection, should have never suffered for one second. Yet he he suffered unspeakable horror for our sins. Our sins. He was condemned forsaken and and put to death in our place. And he was raised up for our justification. And he sent the good Holy Spirit to renew our hearts and grant us faith to believe and to receive abundant life, the life lived near to God. And God does this all not because he, he had to, in order that he might be considered good by some standard outside of himself. You see, God would still be perfect if He, perfectly good, if He judged us in our sin. But the God who is good and always good redeems sinners because He chooses to. And think about this. If you are in Christ this morning, there will be not, there will not be one second of your entire existence 
that God isn't good to you, even if sometimes it doesn't seem that way. Romans 8, 28 to 31 is true. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Brothers and sisters, let's dwell on that. That's goodness. Goodness that moves us from doubt to trust. Goodness that moves us from envy to contentment. Goodness that moves us from entitlement to gratefulness. If you do not know the newness of God that Asaph experienced this morning, then you must first recognize that your sin has separated you from God and made you his enemy. You can only draw near by trusting in Jesus Christ as the one who who suffered and died in your place for your sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So I pray that you will come to know the nearness of God to be your highest good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let's pray. Father God, you are truly good. We confess that we are quick to question what you are doing in our lives and we are slow to trust that you are good to us. Help us to see the brilliance of your goodness, to realize the danger of our unbelief. But God, would you save us from from doubting your goodness and faithfulness. Lord, give us eternal perspective to see that our, our, our momentary struggles and sorrows are, are passing away and they will be replaced with eternal glory. May we see that our ultimate need is you. May we desire you above all and see that, that you are the goodness that, that the world can, can never offer and, and never take away from your people. Draw us nearer, Lord, we pray. Draw us nearer by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.